If you have a Bible, turn to Hosea chapter 4. Hosea chapter 4, I think it's on page 752 of the Pew Bibles. We're going to look at um, Hosea chapter 4 and 5 today. So I'm not going to read um, all of it. I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to read Hosea 4, verses 1 through 3, verse 5, chapter 5, 5 through 7, and chapter 5, 14 through 16. Hosea chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 says this. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. In chapter 5, verses 5 through 7, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds shall they, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. In verses 14 through 16 of chapter 5 says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. The story narrative of Hosea's life and his marriage is in chapters 1 through 3, and the second last half of Hosea is a, a summary, a combination of Hosea's prophecies and his sermons and his messages to the people. Let's pray. Holy Father, Lord, thanks for this morning. Lord, thanks for bringing us together again at the beginning of a week to worship you. Lord, thanks for your word. Lord, thanks for the truth of your word. As the Holy Spirit, I pray you'd teach us this morning, pray that you would remove distractions from our hearts and our minds. You'd help us to see ourselves, and you'd draw us to yourself. Lord, pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Students say the strangest things to their teachers. As you're getting, many of us, of you teachers are getting to wrap up a year, uh, you know this, and we have a number of teachers that I'm familiar with, and one of them is Lexi Collins, uh, Brett and Melissa's daughter, who's a teacher in Rockford, uh, in an elementary school, and every day or throughout the year, she will make a collection of quotes of the day that she gets from students, strange things that people say, and so she posted 10 of the top 10 this week. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them, but... Uh, Three of them were great. Uh, strange things that students say to their teachers. Um, I'll call her Miss Collins because that's who she is. So uh, Miss Collins, when she said this. Miss Collins, her question was, one day, how was your weekend? Did you do anything fun? A fifth grader responded, it's so cringy when you ask questions like that. <laughs> Another student told her this year, um, you remind me of my cat. 
Miss Collins said, uh, how do I remind you of your cat? The student said, my cat's dead. <laughs> and then a kindergarten student said, can I tell you what I learned today? Miss Collins, of course, what did you learn? Student, we learned how penguins feed baby penguins. Miss Collins, oh cool, how do they do it? Student, trust me, you don't wanna know, and walks away. <laughs> At the last one, a kindergarten girl took two steps into the gym this year, uh, turns with a big grin and says, I'm going to cause some trouble today. And that was part of her top 10 students say some strange things to their teachers. And we also, if we're not careful, do and say strange things to God. And that was the problem in the book of Hosea with the people of Israel. And God wrote and gave the book of Hosea so we can see and feel even how the things that we say and do to God concern him, affect him, and how he responds to those things. And he painted the picture with Hosea and Gomer, his wife, because he painted a very graphic, real picture to help the people of Israel see how far that they have come from God. And he sent Hosea to say, listen, all the things that they've said and all the things that they've done has brought judgment on them. And I want you to go tell them that. Here's the message. Go tell them that judgment's coming, but hopefully they will hear. And for the rest of Hosea, from the the rest of the book, it's God in some way calling out his people for corrupting themselves, declaring the consequences of their straying from God, but not ultimately canceling them. God has relentless love for his people, but he calls them out for corrupting themselves, and he declares, here's the consequences for this kinds of things that you say and the things that you do, and he wants them to wake up. They're strong warnings, and he says here, it says right at the beginning of chapter four, it says here, and at the beginning of chapter five, it says here, which we're supposed to listen. These are warning. The tone of the passage is warning. It, we're supposed to hear it as a warning. God wants us to know some things, and he wants the people of Israel to know some things, and he wants them to know, and he wants them to have the backdrop of the story of Hosea and Gomer as they go and hear what God has against them. So what has got, gone wrong? That's what God wants them to know. First of all, God wants them to know what's gone wrong. Why is he saying that there's going to be judgment coming to them? It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children. This is, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. God said there, there's something wrong with his people. There's something wrong with the people of God that they've, they've gone off a different way. And so he's like, he's calling them to court. Just as Hosea took Gomer, in a sense, to court for her infidelity, God is now calling his people to court. And he's indicting them. He's saying, I have a complaint against you. I have a charge against you. Something has gone very wrong because the way it was set up, God called his people out of Israel. He said, I'm going to make from you a, a great nation. They And they, they sinned, they were in Israel, they were in Egypt, excuse me, for in slavery. God called them out in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 3. It says, and God said to them, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
You shall have no other gods before me. 400 years, the people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. God miraculously brings them out and he says to them, I brought you out. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Now go, live, enjoy life. I will bless you. Just don't have any other gods before me. And then he listed the Ten Commandments and the ways that they were supposed to live. And the people didn't do that. They heard what God said, and they went and said something completely different. They followed after other gods. They followed the Baals. And the nation of Israel had had great success, but things had started to now crumble. And the culture was starting to fade away. And God says, I've got a complaint against you. I've got a charge against you. I've got an indictment against you. We need to see the book of Hosea not as a window to history, but a mirror of our own hearts and lives. Where God has said to us, follow this way. But we're all Gomer. And we've all chose to go our own way. And God's warning us, and he's calling us back, and he says, here's the charges. And the charges for the people of Israel was there's no faithfulness in the land. There's no steadfast love, and there's no knowledge. He said, this is, this is, there's no, there was nobody that God could find that was reliable in the land. He said, there's, there's no faithfulness in the land. There's no one who's honest. There's no integrity. There's no one really following me the way like I told them to do. There's no one reliable that I can find to trust. And he said, then there's no steadfast Love, there's no kindness, there's no sense of this is how God delivered us. Could you imagine being brought out from slavery and then running back into slavery? A few years ago in Cleveland, there was a called the House of Horrors. Three young women were captured and put into this house, and for nine years they were kept as slaves for an extremely wicked man. One day they escaped. One of them got out and then the rest of them got out. Could you imagine having spent your time in a house of horrors to choose to walk back into that kind of slavery? This is the picture that God has with the nation of Israel. I did this for you. I brought you out of the houses of slavery and I said, follow this way. And now you've run back in there and there's nobody's reliable. There's nobody's faithful. There's no steadfast love and there's no knowledge of God. They knew who God was. There was, a le- there was lack of information. There was, even more importantly, there was a lack of intimate knowledge of God, and they had long drifted away. Is that you? You know who God is, but there isn't this intimate knowledge of God. And if you're really honest, y- y- you may have Keep doing your religious practices, but in your heart of hearts, it's just drifting away. The consequences that God said of that would be, the therefore the land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish, and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. The consequences of the sin of the people was it had affected all of the land. It had affected everybody that was involved 
with it. And this is even true what it says and should remind us of what it says in Romans chapter 8 where it says, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For the nation of Israel, their sin and the consequences of that had caused the land itself to not be as bountiful as it was supposed to be. Our sin, the Bible says creation itself is in corruption and it's in its groaning because of the consequences of sin, waiting for the day when it would be relieved. We as believers are supposed to be lights in the world that are supposed to go out and bless our cities, bless our towns, the people around us because of the, the, the hope that we have. There, there is a aroma, as we talked about in the class this morning, of People sense this, a lovely aroma, but often because of our own sin and our own drifting away, there's groaning. That's not the way it's supposed to be. What what God says has gone wrong is people have walked away from God. And then he says to them, here's where it's gone wrong. That's what's gone wrong. Here's my problem with you. There's no faithfulness. There's no steadfast love. There's no knowledge of God. And that's what's gone wrong. But here's, here's where it's gone wrong. Here's where it's all fallen apart. And here's the problem. And he says... In verse six, in verse five, you shall stumble by day. The, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night. He says in verse four, yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. And then he starts listing a number of ways. He says, here's the problem. Here's my indictment. Here's my charge. And I'm going to tell you where the problem started to go wrong and where the problem has gone wrong. And he starts, first of all, with the priests, the leaders, the religious, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. And he says to them, the prophet also shall stumble. And in chapter 5, verse 5, he says, Ephraim shall stumble, Judah also shall stumble with them. This was God's word for saying when people drift away, this is what's going to happen. Instead of being able to walk upright and be the blessing that you're called to be, it's just going to be stumbling and stumbling, trying to find your way like a blind man in the dark. And so here's what's going wrong. He says, here's the problem. Where it's gone wrong, first of all, was with these problem priests. Or to our day, to be really direct this morning, it's with, I would say, problem pastors. This is why he says character is extremely important. In verse 6, he says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I have rejected you from being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. God says, you, you, you priests who are supposed to be teaching what I was teaching, you've gone off on your own way, you've become problem." problem priest, and even today there are problem pastors who say they're not speaking for what God says. They want to speak about everything else but his word. Be very careful if Jesus Christ isn't the center of someone's message, and their character has to match those things, and the content of their message matters. He says that these priests, in verse 7 and 8, that they, the more they increase, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people, and they're, and they're greedy for their iniquity. 
The, the culture has just gone unbelievably sinful, and the priests were fine with it because the more the people sinned, then the more that they were supposed to do their religious duty and bring the sacrifice, and then the more sacrifices, the more meat the priests got, so the better they were fed, the happier their life was, and the more content they were. When a culture, sounds a lot like our culture, starts to go astray, loses the blessing of God. You can always find somebody on Fox, CNN, MSNBC, some pastor, some preacher who comes in and says, God used to say that sin, it's no longer sin. I don't know why people say that sin anymore. This is what was happening with these priests. They were finding people, they were saying, hey, that's okay, that's okay. The more that these sins sinned, it just helped them out. The, the problem was with priests, but the problem not only was the priests, the problem was also with the people. Their character was wrong, their content of their wrong was wrong, and their concern was wrong. In verse 9 it says, and it shall be like people, like priest. Which should be a warning. For me, it's a big warning. It means that people will follow what a pastor says. You need to be very careful who you listen to, and you need to be very intentional about praying for me and for the elders of our church. The desire, I believe, of the elders of our church is to find out what God wants for us to do and to follow it. But we need people who will pray for us because it's very easy. There's a lot of money to be made in religion. And it's very easy to say, you know what, I don't want to take that stand anymore. I just want to do this. We, this is what was going on. It's happening all around. It's problem, problem priest. But the next thing he said, here's what's gone wrong in verse 12. It says, my people inquire of a piece of wood and then and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them away and they have left, left their God to play the whore. The people of God who knew God were supposed to follow after God. He says, these people, not only the, the priests were wrong, but the people are now inquiring of a piece of God, for a piece of wood for your information. The, the problem was these people were absolutely prayerless people. They, they wanted to help. They, they, wanted to, they knew they needed some help outside of themselves, but instead of going to God in prayer that they were supposed to, they were going to wood idols. And God says these people, they sacrifice to these things. This is, this is a problem. They were confused about where their true help actually comes. And, and maybe you prayed and you're confused by it. You're not sure, how does it all work? If God's God, why do I have to pray? God calls us to pray. These people knew that they needed help, but instead of going to God for help, they started going to wooden idols and all types of bales, and they were very careless. And they also had a sense that they were in control. You should sense a need for people to pray for you as a believer. You, sh you should sense in you this need that I can't control these situations all on my own. And examine yourself and look in the mirror and say, do I really, do I really believe that it is God who blesses me? Is it, is it really God who's getting me through life? Or am I just in control enough 
then I don't go to wood idols to get things figured out when I'm not sure what to do. But I do go to Google, I go to Bing, I go to Menards, I go to Home Depot, and I go to all these other places and they can figure it out for me. I don't have to ask God anything because I can figure it out. That's the attitude that these people had. That they don't need help outside of themselves. They have access to all these other things. They'll just go to there. So they're not really dependent on God for anything. And God had a great offense to that. He says, you're dependent on me. And so instead of turning to me, the people are turning to all these other things. And they wanted to control instead of let God control. There was problem priests. There was a prayerless people. And they had these puny God substitutes It says they sacrifice on the tops of mountains and burn offerings on the hills under oaks, popular and terabith, because their shade is good. They decided that, you know what, I just want to live a peaceful, calm life. So I'll just worship whatever God I need to worship and find one that's got the shade is good. One that doesn't demand much of me, no sacrifice, no cost. I just need a God that will give me what I need Give me some shade, and I can feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. There was these puny God substitutes, and there was really poor thinking. Verse 19 says, A wind has wrapped them in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They were just being tossed in the wind, God said. It was just, they, they weren't thinking correctly. James 1.8 says, A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is how these people were. One day they were for God, the next day they were for Baal. Whichever God would give them the blessing, whoever could help them out the most. One day they would do what they wanted to do, the next thing they would try to figure out the next step. They were were like people tossed in the wind. James Montgomery Boyce said, our problem is that we think we can do things and do them without God. If you looked at this passage not as a window, but as a mirror, would you find yourself in there? Would would that be the dominant thing of your life, even as a believer, when it comes right down to it, that you're dependent on yourself and all the things you have access to, or are you dependent on God first? That's where you're really trusting in your needs. What was the result for those people? God says they're going to stumble. The people of Israel, he said, were stubborn. They were going to stray. And the whole part of chapter 5 is this warning about what's God going to do. They're going to be judged. Judgment is coming for that kind of living. But what does God want? He pointed out what was wrong. He pointed out where it went wrong, but what does God want from his people? Verse 14 of chapter 5, God says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim. And Ephraim is just another way of speaking of the nation of Israel. And like a young lion to the house of Judah, I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue What is it that God wants from his people? He wants your full attention. He didn't come in like this little lamb or this little rabbit hopping through the woods. 
He says, I will be like a lion to Ephraim. The lion comes in, destroying things. It's going to get people's attention. This is what God wants from us. He wants our full attention. He wants us to see for us that all the help we need, all the reality that we need is found in Jesus Christ. No matter what questions we have about that, no matter how confused we might be to really figure and see how that can be true, we need to see as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God wants our full attention because he wants us to see that the, the hope of the world, the hope of ourselves, the hope of his church is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That we see him as the wisdom from God. Does Jesus Christ have your 100% full attention? He wants your full attention and he wants your focus which is a full surrender of faith. I have never heard of a true believer who has looked back as an old saint who said to me, I wish I had made Jesus less of a priority in my life. I, I wish I'd spent less time loving Jesus. I wish I'd spent less time serving Jesus. I wish I'd less, spent less time giving my resources back for Jesus' good. I've never met anybody who has said that. But I have met people who said, man, I wish I loved Jesus more. I wish I had been committed to Jesus more. Jesus wants your full attention, and he wants my full attention. He wants our full focus, but the question for us is how? How do you get your heart, and how do you direct your heart more to the things of God? How do you adjust the dial to the things that Jesus says really matters? And I think it's in some ways just a matter of math. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 through 25 says, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How do you put your focus on Jesus more? I mean, that's, the, that's I believe, the heartbeat and the desire of many people in our church. The question is not that they, not to be like nation of Israel, the question is, how do I focus my heart on Jesus? That's what I want. How do I turn the dial so it's more like Jesus would want me to do? And it's, I think, a math problem almost. It's in a sense of addition where you desire in your life to live in a relationship with Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart of faith. It's this addition. that This is the desire. You add that to your life. I want to desire God. That's how I want to live for him. And then there's a sense of subtraction. It says, well, we have our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You make decisions where you just say no to things you know God would want you to say no to. 
If you're heading in a direction that is wrong, you turn the wheel and stop heading in that direction. There's choice to it. You, you, you ask God to sprinkle your heart clean with, from an evil conscience. You, you subtract things from your life that are keeping you from where God would have you to be. And it's a matter of division. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. There's this multiplication, which is let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. We have the greatest opportunity in the history of the world to live out our faith. No one else in the history of the world has had as much access to the truth than we do. And if we add these things, it was, it'll, God will use it to multiply in other people's lives, to encourage them, to help them. We can be used by God. As you do those things, your focus on Christ is going to get greater. You're going to have a greater desire and a greater to love them. God wants your full attention. God wants your focus. And God wants your future. He says at the end, in verse 15, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. I will return again to my place. There is one place that we get help from. It was the one place that Jesus went. He came, he lived, and then he went to the cross for our sins. He died and he rose again. And he went to that place willingly. He went to that place and he stayed the whole way. He didn't back out of it. He took all of our sins on him. He, he, he took the entire weight of that place. And then he died and he rose again, and in a sense, he remains for us. Is that the cross? Is where we get our future. And Jesus says, I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Which means that this morning, if you say, I want to turn my focus more towards Jesus, I want to turn the dial more. The way you do that is you go to the cross. You see Jesus again. You see what he's done for you. You repent. You ask him again, help me to be, seek your face and earnestly seek you so that we can have a future and a hope this week, even in our local area on Wednesday. The whole town was shook up because a young boy was lost. It's all through the news. People were looking at information. Even people in our church were very involved in trying to find him. And he was found. You know what relief that gave to his parents? This is the picture that God has for you. He says that in Hosea, it's a warning. If you keep going the wrong way, judgment will come. 
but it was a God who's stayed in this place, welcoming people home who will say, I want Jesus. I need Jesus. I want to keep my life following Jesus. And Acts chapter 17 says he's not that far away. It's just a matter of saying, to Jesus I come. Maybe this morning, Hosea's not the friendliest passage, but it's a warning. And maybe the warning is for you. Where in the middle of the end of May, you would say, you know what? I see myself drifting. I don't want to drift. Just this morning, come back to Jesus. Come to the cross. He is there waiting at his place for you.